Section 13 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 8, Great Rulers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Louis XIV, Part 1. A.D. 1638 to 1715. The French Monarchy. The verdict of this age in reference to Louis XIV is very different from that which his own age pronounced. Two hundred years ago, his countrymen called him Le Grand Monarque, and his glory filled the world. Since Charlemagne, no monarch had been the object of such unbounded panegyric as he, until Napoleon appeared. He lived in an atmosphere of perpetual incense, and reigned in dazzling magnificence. Although he is not now regarded in the same light as he was in the seventeenth century, and originated no great movement that civilization values, in fact was anything but a permanent benefactor to his country or mankind. Yet Louis the Fourteenth is still one of the beacon lights of history, for warning if not for guidance. His reign was an epoch. It was not only one of the longest in human annals, but also one of the most brilliant, imposing, and interesting. Whatever opinion may exist as to his inherent intellectual greatness, no candid historian denies the power of his will, the force of his character, and the immense influence he exerted. He was illustrious if he was not great. He was powerful if he made fatal mistakes. He was feared and envied by all nations, even when he stood alone. And it took all Europe combined to strip him of the conquests which his generals made, and to preserve the balance of power which he had disturbed. With all Europe in arms against him, he, an old and broken-hearted man, contrived to preserve, by his fortitude and will, the territories he had inherited, and he died peacefully upon his bed at the age of seventy-six, still the most absolute king that ever reigned in France. A man so strong, so fortunate until his latter years, so magnificent in his court, which he made the most brilliant of modern times, so lauded by the great geniuses who surrounded his throne, all of whom looked up to him as a central sun of power and glory, is not to be flippantly judged, or ruthlessly hurled from that proud pinnacle on which he was seated amid the acclamations of two generations. His successes dazzled the world, his misfortunes excited its pity, except among those who were sufferers by his needless wars or his cruel persecutions. His virtues and his defects both stand out in bold relief, and will make him a character to meditate upon as long as history shall be written. The reign of Louis the Fourteenth would be remarkable for the great men who shed luster on his throne, if he had himself been contemptible. Voltaire doubted if any age ever saw such an illustrious group, and he compares it with the age of Pericles in Greece, with that of Augustus in Rome, and that of the Medici in Italy four great epochs in intellectual excellence, which have never been surpassed in brilliancy and variety of talent. No such generals had arisen since the palmy days of Roman grandeur as Condé, Turenne, Luxembourg, Vauban, Berwick, and Villars, if we accept Gustavus Adolphus and those generals with whom the marshals of Louis contended, such as William III, Marlborough, and Eugene. No monarch was ever served by abler ministers than Colbert and Louvois, the former developing the industries and resources of a great country, and the latter organizing its forces for all the exigencies of vast military campaigns. What galaxy of poets more brilliant than that which shed glory on the throne of this great king? Men like Corneille, 
Beaulieu, Fontenelle, La Fontaine, Racine, and Moliere, no one of them a Dante or a Shakespeare, but altogether shining as a constellation. What great jurists and lawyers were Letelier and D'Agassu and Molay? What great prelates and preachers were Bousset, Fenelon, Bordelou, Massillon, Fléchier, Chlarin, unrivaled for eloquence in any age? What original and profound thinkers were Pascal, Descartes, Helvetius, Malenbroche, Nicole, and Kessnel? Until the seventeenth century, what more respectable historians had arisen than Dupin, Tillemont, Mabillon, and Fleury, or critics and scholars than Bayle, Arnold, de Saussay, and Calmet? La Rochefoucauld uttered maxims which were learned by heart by giddy courtiers. Great painters and sculptors such as Lebrun, Poisson, Claude Lorraine, and Girardon ornamented the palaces which Mansard erected, while La Notre laid out the gardens of those palaces which are still a wonder. It must be borne in mind that Louis the Fourteenth had an intuitive perception of genius and talent which he was proud to reward and anxious to appropriate. Although his own education had been neglected, he had a severe taste and a disgust of all vulgarity, so that his manners were decorous and dignified in the midst of demoralizing pleasures. Proud, both from adulation and native disposition, he yet was polite and affable. He never passed a woman without lifting his hat, and he uniformly rose when a lady entered into his presence. But, with all his politeness, he was never unbent, even in the society of his most intimate friends, so jealous was he of his dignity and power. Unscrupulous in his public transactions, and immoral in his private relations with women, he had a great respect for the ordinances of religion, and was punctilious in the outward observances of the Catholic Church. The age itself was religious, and so was he, in a technical and pharisaical piety and petty ritualistic duties. He was a bigot and a persecutor, which fact endeared him to the Jesuits, by whom, in matters of conscience, he was ruled, so that he became their tool even when he thought he controlled everything. He was as jealous of his power as he was of his dignity, and he learned to govern himself as well as his subjects. He would himself submit to the most rigid formalities in order to exact a rigorous discipline and secure unconditional obedience from others. No one ever dared openly to thwart his will or oppose his wishes, although he could be led through his passions and his vanity. He was imperious in his command, and exacting in the services he demanded from all who surrounded his person. He had perfect health, a strong physique, great aptitude for business, and great regularity in his habits. It was difficult to deceive him, for he understood human nature, and thus was able to select men of merit and talent for all high offices in state and church. In one sense, Louis the Fourteenth seems to have been even patriotic, since he identified his own glory with that of the nation, having learned something from Richelieu, whose policy he followed. Hence he was supported by the people, if he was not loved, because he was ambitious of making France the most powerful nation in Christendom. The love of glory ever has been one of the characteristics of the French nation, and this passion the king impersonated, which made him dear to the nation, as Napoleon was before he became intoxicated by power and hence Louis had the power of rallying his subjects in great misfortunes. They forgave extravagance in palace-building from admiration of magnificence. They were proud of a despot who called out the praises of the world. They saw in his parks, his gardens, his marble halls, his tapestries, his pictures, and his statues, a glory which belonged to France as well as to him. 
they marched joyfully in his armies whatever their sacrifices for he was only leading them to glory an empty illusion yet one of those words which has ruled the world since it is an expression of that vanity which has its roots in the deepest recesses of the soul glory is the highest aspiration of egotism and louis was an incarnation of egotism like napoleon after him they both represented the master passions of the people to whom they appealed never says saint simon has any one governed with a better grace or by the manner of bestowing more enhanced the value of his favors never has any one sold at so high a price his words nay his very smiles and glances and then so imposing and majestic was his air that those who addressed him must first accustom themselves to his appearance not to be overawed no one ever knew better how to maintain a certain manner which made him appear great yet it is said that his stature was small no one knew better than he how to impress upon his courtiers the idea that kings are of a different blood from other men he even knew how to invest vice and immorality with an air of elegance and was capable of generous sentiments and actions he on one occasion sold a gold service of plate for four hundred thousand francs to purchase bread for starving troops if haughty exacting punctilious he was not cold even his rigid etiquette and dignified reserve were the dictates of statecraft as well as of natural inclination he seemed to feel that he was playing a great part with the eyes of the world upon him so that he was an actor as napoleon was but a more consistent one because in his egotism he never forgot himself not even among his mistresses as grand monarch the arbiter of all fortunes the central sun of all glory was he always figuring before the eyes of men he never relaxed his habits of ceremony and ostentation nor his vigilance as an administrator nor his iron will nor his thirst for power so that he ruled as he wished until he died in spite of the reverses of his sad old age and without losing the respect of his subjects oppressed as they were with taxes and humiliated by national disasters such were some of the traits which made louis the fourteenth a great sovereign if not a great man he was not only supported by the people who were dazzled by his magnificence and by the great men who adorned his court but he was aided by fortunate circumstances and great national ideas he was heir of the powers of richelieu and the treasures of mazarin those two cardinals who claimed equal rank with independent princes higher than that of the old nobility pursued essentially the same policy although this policy was the fruit of richelieu's genius and this policy was the concentration of all authority in the hands of the king louis the thirteenth was the feeblest of the bourbons but he made his throne the first in europe richelieu was a great benefactor to the cause of law order and industry despotic as was his policy and hateful his character when he died worn out by his herculean labors the nobles tried to regain the privileges and powers they had lost and a miserable warfare called the fronde was the result carried on without genius or system but the fronde produced some heroes who were destined to be famous in the great wars of louis the fourteenth mazarin with less ability than richelieu and more selfish conquered in the end by following out the policy of his predecessor he developed the resources of the kingdom besides accumulating an enormous fortune for himself about two hundred millions of francs which when he died he bequeathed not to the church or his relatives but to the young king who thus became personally rich as well as strong 
to have entered upon the magnificent inheritance which these two able cardinals bequeathed to the monarchy was most fortunate to louis unrestricted power and enormous wealth but louis was still more fortunate in reaping the benefits of the principle of royalty we have in the united states but a feeble conception of the power of this principle in europe in the seventeenth century it was nursed by all the chivalric sentiments of the middle ages the person of a king was sacred he was regarded as divinely commissioned the sacred oil poured on his head by the highest dignitary of the church at his coronation imparted to him a sacred charm all the influences of the church as well as those of feudalism set the king apart from all other men as a consecrated monarch to rule the people this loyalty to the throne had the sanction of the jewish nation and of all oriental nations from the remotest ages hence the world has known no other form of government than that of kings and emperors except in a few countries and for a brief period whatever the king decreed had the force of irresistible law no one dared to disobey a royal mandate but a rebel in actual hostilities resistance to royal authority was ruin this royal power was based on and enforced by the ideas of ages who can resist universally accepted ideas moreover in france especially there was a chivalric charm about the person of a king he was not only sacred of purer blood than other people but the greatest nobles were proud to attend and wait upon his person devotion to the person of the prince became the highest duty it was not political slavery but a religious and sentimental allegiance so sacred was this allegiance that only the most detested tyrants were in personal danger of assassination or those who were objects of religious fanaticism a king could dismiss his most powerful minister or his most triumphant general at the head of an army by a stroke of the pen or by a word without expostulation or resistance to disobey the king was tantamount to defiance of almighty power a great general rules by machinery rather than devotion to his person but devotion to the king needed no support from armies or guards a king in the seventeenth century was supposed to be the vice-regent of the deity another still more powerful influence gave stability to the throne of louis this was the catholic church louis was a devout catholic in spite of his sins and was true to the interests of the pope he was governed so far as he was governed at all by jesuit confessors he associated on the most intimate terms with the great prelates and churchmen of the day like Bousset, fenelon lachet and letelier he was regular at church and admired good sermons he was punctilious in all the outward observances of his religion he detested all rebellion from the spiritual authority of the popes he hated both heresy and schism in his devotion to the catholic church he was as narrow and intolerant as a village priest his sincerity in defense of the church was never questioned and hence all the influences of the church were exerted to uphold his domination he may have quarreled with popes on political grounds and humiliated them as temporal powers but he stood by them in the exercise of their spiritual functions in louis reign the state and church were firmly knit together it was deemed necessary to be a good catholic in order to be even a citizen so that religion became fashionable provided it was after the pattern of that of the king and court even worldly courtiers entered with interest into the most subtle of theological controversies but the king always took the side devoted to the pope and he hated jansenism almost as much as he hated protestantism hence the catholic church ever rallied to his support 
So, with all these powerful supports, Louis began his long reign of seventy-six years, which technically began when he was four years old, on the death of his father, Louis the Thirteenth, in 1643, when the kingdom was governed by his mother, Anne of Austria, as regent, and by Cardinal Mazarin, as prime minister. During the minority of the king, the humiliation of the nobles continued. Protestantism was only tolerated, and the country distracted rather than impoverished by the civil war of the Fronde, with its intrigues and ever-shifting parties. A giddy maze, which nobody now cares to unravel. A sort of dance of death, in which figured cardinals, princes, nobles, bishops, judges, and generals. When Bacchus, Momus, and Moloch alternately usurped dominion. Those eighteen years of strife, folly, absurdity, and changing fortunes, when Mazarin was twice compelled to quit the kingdom he governed, when the queen regent was forced also twice to fly from her capital, when Cardinal de Retz disgraced his exalted post as Archbishop of Paris by the vilest intrigues, when Condé and Conti obscured the luster of their military laurels, when alternately the parliaments made war on the crown and the seditious nobles ignobly yielded their functions merely to register royal decrees, these contests, rivalries, cabals, and follies, ending however in the more solid foundations of absolute royal authority, are not to be here discussed, especially as nobody can thread that political labyrinth. And we begin, therefore, not with the technical reign of the great king, but with his actual government, which took place on the death of Mazarin, when he was twenty-two. It is said that when the able ruler passed away so reluctantly from his pictures and his government, the ministers asked of the young king, thus far only known for his pleasures, to whom they should now bring their portfolios. To me, he replied, and from that moment he became the state, and his will the law of the land. I have already alluded to the talents and capacities of Louis for governing, and the great aid he derived from the labors of Richelieu, and the moral sentiments of his age respecting royalty and religion. So I will not dwell on personal defects or virtues, but proceed to show the way in which he executed the task devolved upon him. In other words, present a brief history of his government, for which he was so well fitted by native talents, fortunate circumstances, and established ideas. I will only say that never did a monarch enter upon his career with such ample and magnificent opportunities for being a benefactor of his people and of civilization. In his hands were placed all the powers of good and evil, and so far as government can make a nation great, Louis had the means and opportunities beyond those of any monarch in modern times. He had armies and generals and accumulated treasures, and all implicitly served him. His ministers and his generals were equally able and supple, and he was at peace with all the world. Parliaments, nobles, and Huguenots were alike submissive and reverential. He had inherited the experience of Sully, of Richelieu, and of Mazarin. His kingdom was protected by great natural boundaries, the North Sea, the Ocean, the Mediterranean, the Pyrenees, the Alps, and the mountains which overlook the Rhine. By nothing was he fettered but by the decrees of everlasting righteousness. To his praise, be it said, he inaugurated his government by selecting Colbert as one of his prime ministers, the ablest man of his kingdom. It was this honest and astute servant of royalty who ferreted out the peculations of Fouquet, whom Louis did not hesitate to disgrace and punish. The great powers of Fouquet were gradually bestowed on the merchant's son of Reims. Colbert was a plebeian and a Protestant, cold, severe, reserved, awkward, abrupt, and ostentatiously humble, but of inflexible integrity and unrivaled sagacity and forethought, more able as a financier and political economist than any man of his century. 
it was something for a young proud and pleasure-seeking monarch to see and reward the talents of such a man and colbert had the tact and wisdom to make his young master believe that all the measures which he pursued originated in the royal brain his great merit as a minister consisted in developing the industrial resources of france and providing the king with money Colbert was the father of French commerce and the creator of the French navy. He saw that Flanders was enriched by industry, and England and Holland made powerful by a navy, while Spain and Portugal languished and declined with all their mines of gold and silver. So he built ships of war, and made harbors for them, gave charters to East and West India companies, planted colonies in India and America, decreed tariffs to protect infant manufactures, gave bounties to all kinds of artisans, encouraged manufacturing industry, and declared war on the whole brood of aristocratic peculators that absorbed the revenues of the kingdom. He established a better system of accounts, compelled all officers to reside at their posts, and reduced the percentage of the collection of the public money. In thirteen years he increased the navy from thirty ships to two hundred and seventy-three, one hundred of which were ships of the line. He prepared a new code of maritime law for the government of the navy, which called out universal admiration. He dug the canal of Languedoc, which united the Mediterranean with the Atlantic Ocean. He instituted the academies of sciences, of inscriptions, of belles lettres, of painting, of sculpture, of architecture, and founded the school of oriental languages, the observatory, and the school of law. He gave pensions to Corneille, Racine, Moliere, and other men of genius. He rewarded artists and invited scholars to France. He repaired roads, built bridges, and directed the attention of the middle classes to the accumulation of capital. He recognized the connection of works of industry with the development of genius. He saw the influence of science in the production of riches, of taste on industry, and the fine arts on manual labor. For all these enlightened measures the king had the credit and the glory, and it certainly redounds to his sagacity that he accepted such wise suggestions although he mistook them for his own. So to the eyes of Europe, Louis at once loomed up as an enlightened monarch, and it would be difficult to rob him of this glory. He endorsed the economical reforms of his great minister, and rewarded merit in all departments, which he was not slow to see. The world extolled this enlightened and fortunate young prince, and saw in him a second Solomon, both for wisdom and magnificence. End of section 13